Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 17, The Enigma of Pythagoreanism. In the last episode, we looked at the earliest evidence we have for Pythagoras the man himself. We came to the tentative conclusion that while there are huge gaps in our knowledge here, and we really can't say as much as we'd like to be able to about who Pythagoras might have been and what his teachings might have consisted of, what is clear is that Pythagoras took identifiable elements drawn from the mysteries, along with a theory of metempsychosis, or reincarnation, into animal as well as human bodies, and founded a movement typified by a specific way of life, the Pythagorean bios. In this episode, we'll look at this way of life, discussing what we can and cannot say about it, and also take a quick look at its mnemo-historical legacy. The discussion will thus partly be an exercise in clearing away the legendary materials on early Pythagoreanism, which are part and parcel of Western esotericism, and partly a genealogy of those legendary materials. We want to see not only who the early Pythagoreans were, as much as we can, which isn't that much, but also how they came to be transformed into the Pythagoreans we know and love, heroes of the Western traditions of esoteric interpretation, numerological mysteries, and much else. First off, then, let's have our usual look at the state of the evidence. As we mentioned last time, we have a huge amount of information purportedly dealing with Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans, more than for any other group of pre-Socratic philosophers in the Greco-Roman doxographical tradition, but this evidence is hugely problematic. Various attempts have been made to consider all the evidence and paint a picture of early Pythagoreanism, and the results have diverged wildly. Here are a few points which are very important and which can be stated in a general way without too much fear of contradiction. One, most of our evidence comes from late antique doxographic materials. Much of this is based on earlier materials, sometimes directly quoted, but sifting out the earlier stuff is difficult in varying degrees. Sometimes we have a direct quotation and we're delighted, and other times we can't even be sure whom our doxographic author might be citing. Moreover, the vast amount of this early material cited isn't early like the author cited in the previous episode. It's platonic or post-platonic. Two, why is this problematic? Because, as mentioned last episode, Plato's own use and transformation of Pythagorean materials basically came to define what Pythagorean meant to later tradition. It's very difficult to see the pre-Platonic Pythagoreans through the Platonic and Platonist fog. 3. However, we do have one definite and one likely candidate for a source of genuine pre-Platonic Pythagoreanism, as well as lots of circumstantial evidence which we can use to help build up a picture. The first of these, the definite source, is Philolaus of Croton, who lived circa 470 to 385 BCE. Now, Croton, of course, is the town where Pythagoras did his thang. Philolaus was, Diogenes Laertius tells us, the first Pythagorean to write a book. And some of the fragments of his book are now generally recognized as authentic. So here we have the writings of a genuine Pythagorean of the 5th and 4th centuries. We're going to look at them later in this episode. Our second, more problematic source for genuine early Pythagoreanism is Aristotle, of all people. Now, Aristotle was Plato's pupil and would seem an unlikely source for genuinely Pythagorean materials uncontaminated by Platonist reinterpretation. 
But Walter Burkert has argued persuasively in his book Lore and Science in Ancient Pythagoreanism that besides Philolaus, it is Aristotle and some of his pupils, like Aristoxenus, used judiciously, who gives us our best window into what the early Pythagoreans were doing and thinking. So keeping these strictures of evidence in mind, what can we say off the bat about the early Pythagorean movement? There are a few things which it will be best to address sequentially. Firstly, let's look at this whole way of life business. And while we're at it, we can discuss something I promised to get into last week, the Pythagorean political episode, wherein Southern Italy was basically being run by the Pythagorean society for some time. This is pretty awesome stuff. And while the details remain obscure, we can be certain enough to blow our minds. Secondly, we can talk about what we might call the philosophical content of early Pythagoreanism. If these guys were doing philosophy, they must have had some theories, right? Well, right. But as it turns out, there was a lot of complexity and difference here, so we may need to revise what we mean by philosophical tradition if we want to discuss Pythagoreanism under that rubric. And I should say that we won't have time to get into this stuff very much in this episode. It isn't immediately germane to our topic of Western esotericism. So fascinating as it is, we're just really going to discuss Philolaus briefly as a kind of case study. After these two sections, when we're on a bit more certain ground concerning what the early Pythagoreans really were doing in southern Italy, we want to turn to the problem of later Pythagorean texts, so-called, of which there are many, none of which are thought really to pertain to this early Pythagorean movement, and then the problem of Neo-Pythagoreanism, which is the stuff that actually has the greatest influence on Western esotericism and the later traditions constructed around these early philosophers, the nemo-historical stuff, which is where things will get seriously esoteric. So firstly, the idea of the Pythagorean way of life, the bios. Plato, in his dialogue, The Politics or Republic, as it's known, tells us that the earliest followers of Pythagoras, quote, loved him, that's loved Pythagoras, for his teaching, and handed on to posterity a certain way of life. And these latter-day followers, even now, seem in some way to stand out, among others, for their manner of life, which they call Pythagorean after him. End of quote. Now, we know of philosophical schools from before Plato's times. There were people called Heraclitians, for example, followers of Heraclitus. And of course, after Plato, the formation of philosophic schools became the norm. It became commonplace. You have the Stoics, you have the Epicureans, so on and so forth. But the idea here, and in other sources, really seems to be something more like membership of a sect than of a philosophic school. The Pythagorean bios meant adherence primarily to a set of rules and regulations. Vegetarianism is the most famous one there are many others. We can also probably say that they believed in metempsychosis, since we have good evidence that Pythagoras himself did, and were looking through their practice of this way of life to arrange to have a better series of reincarnations after they died. Although we don't actually have explicit testimony to this, it just seems to sort of make sense. Now, we're talking here about the earliest group, which we might call Pythagoreans, to whom Plato seems also to be referring, although he's referring to them in the present tense. He's saying they're still alive in his time. Later on, we also get people who, as far as we can tell, were something more like a simple philosophical school, without necessarily observing any weird rules about vegetarianism and only worshipping the gods dressed in white and abstaining from beans and all that kind of stuff. Let's talk about these prohibitions, first of all, and then discuss the purported split of the Pythagorean movement into two parts, which is relevant to this later development of something more recognizably philosophic. So, firstly, 
the prohibitions. We have a very strong, if complex, chain of evidence which links early Pythagoreanism with what seem to be ritual prohibitions of the type familiar to us from early Greek religion and from religions around the world more generally. As we saw last week, some of these are even traceable directly to mystery cults in particular. These come down to us in the form of the famous Pythagorean akousmata, the things heard, which presumably refers to, notionally at least, the commandments received from Pythagoras himself. They have an amazing afterlife in later tradition, where they become interpreted esoterically as having many secret hidden philosophical meanings. And in our upcoming episode on the birth of the symbol, we will see that these akousmata and the related trope of the symbolon actually lie at the very roots of the idea of symbolism itself. But the akousmata seem, in the early phase, to have been much more simple than this. These are just ritual prohibitions, as far as we can tell. Abstain from beans. Do not pick up crumbs off the floor. Never bury a body dressed in wool. They may often have had a, an ethical character. Do not visit temples just because you're passing by, but only when you're specifically going to the temple for the reason of worshipping the gods. May tell us something about how religious duties were meant to be taken extra seriously by Pythagoreans, for example. But often the akousmata seem completely arbitrary. And when we do find a context which makes sense of them, it is usually with reference to mystery cultic prohibitions for reasons of ritual purity, rather than in contemporary philosophy. So we're pretty unsure about what the genuine early akousmata may have been. It's pretty clear that at least some of them are added as the tradition about Pythagoras develops, both orally and in writing. But we don't have any strong reason to doubt that the general character and many of the actual sayings go right back to Pythagoras himself. It's just a question of which ones go back to him, and we can't really say for sure. So we can say with a great deal of confidence that a major part of the Pythagorean way of life in its earliest phase lay in respecting these ethical and ritual prescriptions. We can also say that these Pythagoreans were associated from Plato's time, if not earlier, with a practice of silence. What this means will appear in much greater detail in the next episode, which will be devoted entirely to the topos of Pythagorean silence, as this is perhaps the single most powerful trope of esotericism found in the ancient world, and we want to do it full justice. But let's just say for now that the evidence attests that the Pythagoreans knew how to keep their mouths shut, and that this was probably a kind of silence like that associated with the mysteries, a silence about at least some of the things heard from their master, which are thus seen structurally as being parallel with the wisdom taught in the mystic initiations. Numerous sources indicate that the Pythagoreans kind of blew everyone away in southern Italy with their intensely disciplined way of life and strict code of silence, and this has been suggested as one of the reasons for their rise to political power. They were a disciplined, well-regulated community, which both excited admiration and was able to act as a concerted whole. Okay, but if there was such a concerted whole, what about this split into rival factions, which was the next thing we wanted to talk about? The idea here is that sometime in the 5th century BCE, so sometime after Pythagoras' death, but we can't say exactly how long, there was a split of the Pythagorean movement into two factions. The tradition calls them akousmatikoi, who were the traditionalist Pythagorean way of lifers, following the akousmata, and the mathematikoi, who were the philosophers proper. Now these will have been the guys doing the mathematical stuff we all associate with Pythagoreanism. 
Now, the names of the two groups sometimes get mixed up in our sources, and so they're reversed, but let's just use them anyway to refer to our two groups, the, the old-time, old-school Pythagoreans and the newer, more mathematically-oriented philosophers, Akusmatikoi and Mathematikoi, respectively. Whatever they were actually called at the time or called themselves, we don't really know. This split into two groups is reported by Iamblichus, citing Aristotle, who tells us that the Mathematikoi claimed to be following Pythagoras, but were actually followers of Hippasos of Metapontum. Now, we've mentioned this fellow before. He's the guy whom later traditions say betrayed the secrets of the Pythagoreanism and was duly punished by the gods. He drowns at sea, and this is seen as his just punishment for revealing these secrets. The traditions vary as to what he is meant to have revealed, either something to do with the construction of the dodecahedron, which, as we shall see in an episode on Plato's Timaeus, is considered an esoteric matter by Plato as well. So it may actually, the story may reflect Platonic concerns. Or, it has been suggested, Hippasus spoke openly about the problem of mathematical incommensurability. Either way, or neither way, he couldn't keep his mouth shut and the gods drowned him. So, Iamblichus here, and presumably Aristotle in the original statement that is lost but is preserved in some form by Iamblichus, is telling us that these guys claimed to be Pythagoreans, but really they're followers of Hippasos. Now, leaving aside Hippasos, but we should remember him as he is an early exemplar of the figure of the punished revealer of the mysteries, a symbolic figure who will follow us down the ages as we look at esotericism and will reappear in various forms. Most scholars agree that the story of the split among the Pythagoreans into two camps does actually represent some version of a genuine historical event. Aristotle's, quote, so-called Pythagoreans, who first laid hold of mathematics and advanced it, would seem to be this philosophical movement. So this would seem to be proper philosophic credentials and be heading in the direction, in Aristotle's time, of what we really tend to associate with Pythagoreanism, philosophers dealing with mathematics and advancing it. So whatever happened to the akousmatikoi, these old-school Pythagoreans who were not eating beans and that sort of thing, did they just die out? Well, we're not quite sure how, but they clearly did die out, and this almost certainly has something to do with the amazing story of the rise and fall of the Pythagorean state. So here's what we know. Pythagoras came to Croton in southern Italy, as we saw last time. He set about founding a way of life and soon had many adherents. In about the year 510 BCE, Croton defeated Sybaris, another local Greek colony, Polis. And from then on, Croton enjoyed some kind of hegemony in southern Italy until about 450 BCE, so a good 60 years under a Pythagorean oligarchy. We actually can see this from the evidence of coins minted at the time. The Pythagoreans were in charge. Incidentally, the people of Sybaris were all Sybaritic, that is, addicted to luxury, which is where we get the word Sybaritic from, so presumably they were easy prey for the staunchly ascetic Pythagoreans of Croton. In, again, circa 450 BCE, there's a revolt against the Pythagorean ruling class. We're told of another revolt earlier in circa 510, so possibly during Pythagoras' own lifetime, but that one was unsuccessful. This one, in around 450, resulted in the gathering places of the Pythagoreans being burned down, many Pythagoreans killed, and a total overthrow of their government. Here's what the historian Polybius says about the incident. 
At the time, when the houses belonging to the Pythagorean associations were burned down, there followed a general revolutionary upheaval, as was natural since the most prominent members of each city-state had thus been unexpectedly massacred, and the Greek communities in that region of southern Italy became the scene of murder, revolutionary warfare, and every kind of civil disturbance. After this downfall, the nearby city of Tarentum seems to have become the center of Pythagorean activity, but this is no longer a political activity of any sort. This, from now on, is the realm of ideas. Now, this incident doesn't really loom large in the history of Western esotericism, although it will crop up again in our study of Plato. But my real reasons for mentioning it are two. Firstly, the story of the rise and fall of the Pythagoreans is just clearly, totally amazing. Southern Italy was being run, to some degree at least, by a sect practicing a crazy way of life developed in part from the initiatory culture of the mysteries and the folkloric motifs of the soul-manipulating holy man. There isn't much else like this in ancient history. But, as Walter Burkert says on page 119 of Lore and Science, we shouldn't necessarily be shocked by this development. Quote, There is no inconsistency between this and the religious and ritual side of Pythagoreanism. In fact, cult society and political club are in origin virtually identical. Every organized group expresses itself in terms of a common worship, and every cult society is active politically as a hetairia. Pythagoreanism fits into this picture and can be seen to have a firm rootage in the social and political conditions of the time. End of quote. So Burkert is emphasizing here, for those not familiar with the ancient Greek terminology, that all political life in ancient Greece has its religious side, which is certainly true, and that the private societies existing within the larger society of the polis, the hetairia mentioned above, and he might have also added the theosos, or private religious grouping, these were always united along religious lines in some way. So when you got together to make a law in the city boule council, you would also make a sacrifice to Zeus, etc., etc., etc. There was no line necessarily drawn between religious and political matters. But the Pythagoreans were, as we have seen, special, and they were regarded as such by outsiders, as far as we can tell. So on the one hand, explicable that such a group might arise and take power, but on the other hand, still pretty crazy. So, reason number one for dwelling on this episode, it's fascinating and unique. Reason number two, Iamblichus's discussion of the episode. In his On the Pythagorean Life, the 3rd and 4th century CE Platonist Iamblichus tells us something extraordinary about the Pythagorean downfall. Now, this book is hundreds and hundreds of years later, in the late Antique period, and it's a wonderful collection of stories and anecdotes about Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans, and most of it is utterly legendary, but he does preserve lots of early material which can be used by historians if great care is taken. Overall, though, Iamblichus tells us what a late Platonist would be expected to think of Pythagoras, i.e. he was the founder of philosophy, he was a wonder-working holy man, and he was basically a super-Platonist avant la lettre. Nothing like the Pythagoras we have been outlining in the last and this episode, but the kind of Pythagoras who lived on in tradition. In the course of his story, Iamblichus tells us two anecdotes about the fall of the Pythagoreans, one of which concerns us here, and one of which I'm saving for the next episode. The surviving Pythagoreans, we are told, in fear lest the wisdom of Pythagoras be extinguished altogether by the anti-Pythagorean persecution, go underground. 
and scatter to the far corners of Greece. In effect, they become a secret initiatory conspiracy, devoted to keeping the flame of true philosophy alive and awaiting the time when they may re-emerge into the light of day. I think we have here the earliest reference in the Western tradition to a secret brotherhood of initiates intentionally disappearing and walking among us. This is good stuff. Iamblichus has established that the Pythagoras founded the true philosophy, i.e. what we call Platonist philosophy, but what Iamblichus would call the Pythagorean tradition, of which Plato was a part. And the Iamblichian Pythagoreans become the first recorded example in the West of the theme of the secret society, hiding the initiated truth and waiting for the right time to re-emerge. Now, obviously, the mystery cults are already a secret society of sorts, but this is something different. Students of later esoteric currents will be thinking here of the Rosicrucians, or perhaps the perfect masters of the Theosophical Society, or even the secret chiefs whose shadowy hand guided the Golden Dawn. This is a theme with a very long life. Now, I said that this is the earliest reference to such a secret philosophic brotherhood, but actually I have found one possible candidate for an earlier one, but that will have to wait for a later episode. Mwahahaha. Now, awesome as this stuff is, let's go back in time to our earlier sources and see if we can make out anything about the philosophic movement known as Pythagoreanism. Firstly, we should note that the philosophic Pythagoreans who arise after the split alluded to earlier, and seemingly after the downfall of the Pythagorean oligarchic hegemony in southern Italy, they were a varied movement. We're told by Aristotle, who's again probably our best source here, lots of things like some of the so-called Pythagoreans think this, and others think this, and so on. So the picture he draws is one of a loose movement with varying positions on different philosophical points. Such a broad and varied movement is the context in which, later on, we will discuss Empedocles as part of a movement with recognizable Pythagorean traits, without implying that he belonged to some formal Pythagorean school. Empedocles was working with materials arising from the loose group of philosophers known as the Pythagoreans in southern Italy. Now, these folks were not the Akusmatikoi. The most confusing thing about the traditions associated with the Pythagoreans is the fact that the later doxographers basically consider the Akusmatikoi and the Mathematikoi to be the same movement. And even when they s talk about the split between them, as some do, Aristotle and Iamblichus mention it, they still kind of mingle the evidence for the two different types of movement. A single Pythagorean movement emerges. But the only way to make sense of the evidence really is the theoretical split we mentioned earlier. How it happened exactly we don't know, but we go from a movement with strong credentials for belief in reincarnation and an interest in soul manipulation and vegetarianism and ritual practice to another movement, still known by the name of Pythagoreans, or so-called Pythagoreans, that's how Aristotle tends to refer to them, practicing what is recognizably a form of pre-Socratic philosophy. Enter number, musical harmony, cosmology, and all that good stuff. Now, we can't say with certainty what these early Pythagorean philosophers might have taught in all the details, or to what degree they might have agreed one with the other, though going by other early Greek philosophers, generally, they probably disagreed on pretty much everything. But we can identify some things. And best of all, we have the fragments of Philolaos to go on. Philolaos lived, again, from around 470 to maybe 385 BCE. So he was an older contemporary of Plato, actually, and much later than Pythagoras himself. 
So let's look at what Philolaus tells us. But first, what does Aristotle tell us about the Pythagoreans generally? Firstly, number is important. The Pythagoreans, Aristotle tells us, believed that things were numbers. The implication is that they thought that things were literally made out of numbers. So what does this mean? No one is sure, or rather lots of people are sure, but no one can agree. One theory is a kind of naive number atomism. The Pythagoreans thought that numbers were some kind of atom-like particles, but made of numbers somehow, of which all things are composed. Now this stuff, a lot of it dates to exactly the same time as the rise of the, the atomist thinkers, Democritus and Leucippus, so atomism might be in the air, you might say. This is one possible interpretation. I personally don't buy it. Perhaps, as seems more likely, they believed in some kind of mathematical order undergirding reality. The evidence here is complicated and baffling, and I won't go into it too much here, because this episode would stretch to infinity. And infinity is a concept in which, apparently, the Pythagoreans were also interested. And about that, Parmenides, as we shall see, grounds all of reality in being, which is one. Plato, too, makes the one, or unity, his first principle, or at least he does sometimes. And that's how the later Platonists interpret his thought. This is surely an idea that he got from the Pythagoreans, right? And Parmenides is also writing in southern Italy, surely his one comes from the Pythagoreans. Seemingly not. Our earliest attestations of Pythagorean first principles seem to show that they agreed that the first principles were limit and the unlimited, or the infinite. Now, the unlimited could be also translated as the boundless, or the infinite, something like that. It is from these first principles that the one then arises. And this one is described in some sources as a male-female principle, so it's not a perfect utter unity beyond unity that we find in later Platonist tradition that we're dealing with here, but some kind of hermaphroditic first creation, which then goes on to give rise to the universe as we know it. Heady stuff, and stuff that was written out of the history of Pythagoreanism once Plato had come on the scene, to some degree. So, the limited and the infinite, and from these, everything else. This is basically the picture that we can assemble from the various surviving testimonies of Aristotle in the metaphysics and the fragments of his lost work on the Pythagoreans. Now, Philolaus seems to echo most of these ideas and presents more or less what Aristotle attributes to the Pythagoreans, but with some intriguing ideas all his own. In fragment B6, in Diels and Kunz's fragments of the Pre-Socratics, Philolaus expands on the limit and unlimited duo arguing that a third principle is required to explain the world. Limits and unlimited are opposites, and so they must have a bond which somehow allows them to work together if they're to form a coherent whole, and this is harmonia, harmony or fitting together. Philolaus uses the diatonic musical scale to show how this works, from the unlimited continuum of all possible sounds, so kind of like a like that, comes the set finite series of notes proper to a scale. La -da 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 -da. The link between them, harmonic ratios, which are numbers. So you can have a musical scale because out of the infinite, the unbounded, which is all possible sound, you get certain notes. And the reason these certain notes work together are because of the ratios in which they relate to each other. 
We are finally in familiar Pythagorean philosophical territory, number and harmonic ratios determining the way the world works. So this kind of Pythagoreanism did exist, but it seemingly just didn't exist in the thought of Pythagoras or in the thought of the early, early Pythagoreans. It arises in this mathematicos school that arises later. Philolaus also came up with what is the earliest attested cosmology, which prefigures modern ideas of the solar system in some respects. He takes the earth from the center of things and has it circling around a central fire known as the hearth. So far, so good. But he also has the sun circling around the fire. Not so good. He adds the other planets and in their proper order, which is something else no one had done yet as far as we know, and last but not least, he included the counter-Earth, the Antichthon, which is a mysterious body which Aristotle thinks he just included to make the number of heavenly bodies add up to ten, which is a sacred number to the Pythagoreans. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get into that stuff, but that's all wonderful and interesting esoteric number theory, which we will doubtless get to in later episodes. There's a lot more which could be said about Philolaus's cosmology, but it falls outside our main point. I just felt that I had to include some mention of it since when early modern astronomers like Copernicus published their work, they called it a revival of the ancient Pythagorean doctrines, and this was a reference to Philolaus specifically. Now let's turn to our final topic, the later Pythagorean tradition. The interesting thing about the later Pythagorean tradition is that it is neither Pythagorean nor is it a tradition. In the Hellenistic period, we get lots and lots of pseudo-Pythagorean texts of various kinds. Sometimes we read about them in other authors, and so we just get a title, basically. But sometimes we have fragments of the texts as well. There are a few main types of these texts. Hyuroi Logoi, so-called, hymns in honor of numbers, arithmological treatises, gnomological literature, and writings claiming to be by Pythagoras himself. Let's look at each of these very briefly. A Hyuros Logos, a sacred discourse, was the name given to the information, usually in the form of a myth, which was taught in the mystery cults. So one of the things that might make up part of the process of initiation in a, into a mystery, alongside, say, catharsis or catharmos, purification, and epoptea, the final viewing experience, whatever form that took, was a teaching of some kind. This was the Hieros Logos. Many pseudo-Pythagorean texts appear in the Hellenistic period, called Hieros Logos, and these are thus writings giving themselves out as esoteric Pythagorean teaching texts along the lines of the teaching texts used in the mysteries. More on these next episode. The hymns in honor of numbers are quite amazing, and linked thematically with the arithmetical texts. Now these are not mathematical texts in the normally understood sense. They tell us of things like the hidden meanings of different numbers, their intrinsic properties. So here is a hymn to four. What's so great about four? Let's tell you. The interrelationships. So two plus three, their interrelationships and their incredible power of five, which involves both the power of two and three, and the ways in which they correspond to the world. So five is the number of marriage because blah, blah, blah. More on these in many future episodes when we discuss Neo-Pythagoreanism and its influence on esoteric thought more broadly. But you can see the germs of something very important for Western esotericism here, the idea that numbers have intrinsic meanings. This is often referred to as number mysticism, in fact. 
uh, a term I would studiously avoid because it has nothing to do with what's normally meant by mysticism in the sense that the history of religions uses it. But you can see why people talk about it as number mysticism because it's a kind of evocative and oogly-boogly understanding of numbers and their relationship with the world. And basically then anything that has numbers attached to it, say words where the letters can stand for numbers, or indeed things in the world that can be counted, can have an esoteric meaning attached to it simply because of this number process that's going on. We also have the gnomological literature. Gnomological means sort of dealing with proverbial wisdom. So the book of Proverbs in the Bible is gnomological literature, for example. These texts in the Pythagorean context, or the pseudo-Pythagorean context, often take the form which seems to be particularly associated with Pythagoras, of question-and-answer dialogues of the form what is man? What is the cosmos? What is number? Etc., etc., followed by the answers. And the answers are often a bit cliche, actually. So the TST, what is blank, followed by an answer, which gives a lot of pithy, sort of proverbial um, understandings, is a typical form of pseudo Pythagorean literature, which we'll see again next week. Finally, we have evidence for a burgeoning Pythagorean publishing industry consisting of the genuine works of Pythagoras, published for centuries after Pythagoras' death, which seems to have flourished alongside the strong tradition that Pythagoras wrote nothing himself. Iamblichus refers to two treatises entitled On Nature and Concerning the Gods, which he attributes to Pythagoras during his own lifetime. And On Nature and On the Gods are really generic titles for philosophical treatises. In fact, on Nature just about sums up the work of every pre-Socratic philosopher. So if they wrote a book, it might have a special name, but very often you could just as easily call it On Nature. Plotinus, earlier than Iamblichus, refers intriguingly to the fact that Pythagoras was obscure because he wrote poetry. So we can't tell what particular pseudonymous work he was referring to here, but I bet it was good. So these are some of the types of literature which flourished under the Pythagorean banner in the Hellenistic world and later. See the seminal work of Holger Theslev for more details. We don't, ha however, have evidence of a continued philosophical movement under the name of Pythagoreanism in this period. So we have the texts, but we don't have really any evidence of a school of thought of Pythagorean thinkers in the sense that we did in the 5th century. This would seem to change, however, early in the 1st century BCE. The movement known as Neo-Pythagoreanism which we first find at this time, perhaps can't really be defined as a movement at all. We do have texts, and they all claim to be somehow Pythagorean or as read as being such, so scholars have coined the term Neo-Pythagorean to describe this kind of text. But how seriously we are to take Cicero's testimony of a revived Pythagorean way of life or path at Rome in his day is open to question. I've always had a problem with this term, as it would seem to imply a movement or tradition, something along the lines of Neoplatonism, which really does refer to a movement of sorts. But here we don't really have a movement. I would describe it rather as an intellectual tendency which sought to explain reality through a number-based cosmology. We often find a one as a first principle, and the unlimited and limited seem to have disappeared earlier, so note the Platonic influence. Although various approaches to this one are given in different texts. So there's not just one idea about the one in the Neo-Pythagorean texts. There's lots of different ones. Ha. 
So that's Neopythagoreanism as I see it, but we shall need to turn to this subject in more detail later, and hopefully with expert help. This is especially important because it is from the so-called Neopythagorean authors like Nicomachus of Gerasa that the esoteric number material found in much later Western esotericism really gets its strongest boost. When later authors from the Middle Ages or the Renaissance cite Pythagorean doctrines about number and the esoteric meaning of number, we usually need to look in the first instance to the Platonists and to authors like Nicomachus. So this brings us to our cliffhanger ending of episode two of our Pythagorean trilogy. What have we learned? Well, we've seen that there was a genuine Pythagorean movement in the 6th and 5th centuries, which genuinely came to a sticky end in the 5th, and that from the ashes of this somehow arose philosophers like Philolaos, who were dealing with harmony, number, and cosmology, the traditional materials we tend to associate with Pythagorean philosophy. Hence, the reputation of Pythagoras as a founder of arithmetic and so on is probably owing to these later philosophers rather than to Pythagoras himself. It may, of course, be that the original Pythagoras did have these kind of concerns, but the evidence doesn't show it. We should mention here as an aside that there are a host of other early Pythagorean philosophers, such as Archytas and others, who play a role in our story, and we've left them out here for reasons of time, but we shall be meeting them again later on. So Philolaus was by no means alone. We've just talked about him for a moment because he's the only one that we really have any writings of. This movement of mathematical philosophy seems to have died out at some unknown point, perhaps killed off by the very successful Platonism of the early academy. But anyway, the Pythagorean movement, properly speaking, doesn't survive into the Hellenistic period, as far as we can tell. What does survive, though, is a huge production of texts purporting to be by Pythagoras himself or to expound Pythagorean wisdom, all of which seemingly bear the hallmarks of a Platonized interpretation of numerical mysteries. And we certainly see the survival of the mystique of the Pythagoreans, which comes down to us to this day. Finally, we have teased the so-called Neo-Pythagorean movement, which arises in the late Hellenistic and sorts of exists throughout the Roman period, but again, the degree to which we think it was a movement at all is open to debate. We've also seen perhaps the earliest reference to a secret society of initiates going underground, what's known in esoteric circles as doing the Illuminati, which is pretty cool. Next week, we'll finish our survey of all things Pythagorean with a whole episode devoted to the subject of the theme of Pythagorean silence. The episode will cover such topics as Until then, try to imitate the secret philosophic meaning of the commandment to abstain from beans and stay esoteric. <laughs>